um, my mind's appreciation week. Uh, and so uh, there is a basket that is back on the Welcome Center. If you would like to write a card, um, especially in this day and age, it's good for us to let our officers know that they are appreciated and to honor them. And so one of the ways we can do that is by writing cards of appreciation to our Altoona Police Department. And so if you're willing to do that, there's a uh, basket in the back. Uh, it's probably, if you haven't done it yet, probably too late to do that tonight. Um, but we'll leave it there through Sunday so you can drop it in there Sunday if you would like. So just be aware of that. Uh, maybe think about that this week as we head towards Sunday. Take some time to write a little note of encouragement that we'll drop off at uh, the police department here in Altoona. Let's open with a word of prayer as we come to Psalm 65. Heavenly Father, this evening as we gather together, we recognize, even as we have just confessed in song, just how prone to wander that we are. Heavenly Father, we, we know ourselves. We are sinners. And Heavenly Father, you know us. And yet you love us. And you care for us. And you pursue us. Even as we just sang, Jesus sought me when a, when a sinner. Heavenly Father, we pray that the truths that we have just sang, that the truths of Psalm 65 would grip our hearts this evening. That through your word, you would work in each and every one of us, that we would be encouraged, that we'd be challenged, that we would find our hope in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I know we find ourselves in planting season. Uh, in fact, my brother-in-law, Peter, uh, just texted the family, I think it was no more than a week ago, saying that they had just planted uh, the last field for the year. Uh, and then he gave a bunch of statistics, all the acres and all that crazy stuff that they had planted. But as we come to Psalm 65, it's a harvest psalm. It's a psalm of, of praise looking at the harvest that God has done, at all that God has given, at how God has provided. Specifically in Psalm 65, you'll see as we read it in just a second, David is praising God for his provision, his work in salvation, and then for his provision or his work in creation as well. He praises the Lord for he is both redeemer and creator. Join me. Or follow along as I read Psalm 65 this evening. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion. And to you the vow shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. By awesome deeds and righteousness you will answer us, O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far-off sea, far seas, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power, you who still the noises of the seas, the noise of their waves and the tumult of the peoples. They also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the morning and the evening rejoice. 
You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers and bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness, and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. It's almost a breath of fresh air as we come to Psalm 65. In several psalms leading up to this, we find David accosted by his enemies. He's surrounded. He's betrayed. There's all these dark and difficult things going on. And finally, in Psalm 65, we come to a psalm where we can rejoice. A psalm of praise. A psalm for harvest time. The first thing we see in the first five verses of this psalm is God's work and salvation. David begins with this proclamation. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion. And to you the vow shall be performed. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, that is Jerusalem. It's a desire to worship the Lord. It's God's people waiting expectantly for their God. And yet, in a sense, there's also in this psalm a future aspect to this. Not just do God's people desire to to gather and to worship God here in his presence, but we look forward to the day when all of the promises that God has given us have been fulfilled. We long for the day when our faith is sight and when tongue from every nation and people and land gather to praise God. Even as David is writing this, he's longing for that day. And yet, there's also an immediate sense to that. There's something special about the people of God joining together and praising God. Gathering together and praising the Lord. It's almost as if they're, 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 they're all gathered in this congregation together and they're ready to burst with praise. They're just waiting for God to walk through the door and they will just explode. To you, the vow shall be performed. This is the idea of worship owed. If you think in the sense of harvest time, maybe a farmer who makes a vow to God before he plants his field, a soldier returning from war who has made a a promise, a vow to God. The people are gathered, they are praising you, God, in Zion, and vows shall be performed, worship that we owe, promises that we have made. Verse 2, O oh, you who hear prayer. We find this often in the psalm. David focuses on God's ability to hear his prayer. Many psalms, he starts out, Hear me, O God, and then he ends with the hope, knowing that God will hear him. Here, right at the beginning, he confesses, You are the God who hears prayer. In fact, he comes confidently, he comes boldly with this prayer. Oh, you who hear prayer, this is who you are. 
you see, you know, you hear. To you all flesh will come. Again, that's looking to the future. There's a time when all the earth will be gathered together to worship the Lord. Can you come to verse 3? It's a verse that, that really stands out. As I, as I study this psalm this week, I have once again have a new favorite psalm. I love this verse. Iniquities prevail against me. Iniquities prevail against me. That's a line that hits home. That's a line that's true for every single one of us in this room this evening. We're just saying that truth. It's prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. I know that's true. I know the wickedness, the depth of my heart. David here recognizes there is no hope for him. He has no strength against sin himself. Iniquity prevails against me. I am powerless against my sin. It prevails against me. But as for our transgression, as for that sin, as for my iniquity, what hope is there for me if it prevails against me? This is the hope that you will provide atonement for them. Iniquities prevail against me, but you prevail against sin. You prevail against them. Atonement, the idea of covering or cleansing. I find it fascinating, too, as you read this. As David pens that, what's going through his mind? Is he thinking of the cross? He's thinking of the altar. God provides a way. He looks to the altar as these animals are slaughtered and his blood is spilt. He looks to that and he sees God has provided and yet little does he know that God will provide so much more. David looks and he sees the altar. We look and we see the cross. The situation is the same. Iniquities prevail against me and you will provide atonement for them. Little did David know what he was really saying there. Not just in animals. But you will provide atonement for them in your own son, Jesus Christ. Iniquities prevail against me, but you will prevail over them. Verse 4 then builds on verse 3. And it's a remarkable statement. Blessed is the man that you choose. Here in Psalm 65, we find the doctrine of election. Blessed is the man that you, God, choose. Not only that, but you cause him to approach you. We have no strength in of ourselves, nothing in us to, to allow us to come to God. How is it that God can hear our prayers? How is it that David can proclaim this with confidence? It is because God has chosen him and God has caused him to approach. He's elect by God. He is called by God. The effectual call of God. There is no approach to God outside of the grace of God. David knew that all the way back. 
then. Blessed is the man that you choose. There's not an ounce of effort in here by David. There's nothing that David can do to to earn this grace, to do any of this. This is all a gift of God. As for me, as for David, iniquities prevail against me. But you provide atonement for them. It is you who has chosen me. It is you who has caused me to approach you. To what end? That he may dwell in your courts, in your presence. We should be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. In your presence, we will rejoice forevermore. Even in this harvest psalm, as they're rejoicing in how God has provided, even now they're looking forward to how much more God will provide, how much more God will do. Even as they rejoice in what God has provided, they are proclaiming, Come, God, fulfill your promises, bring the kingdom. Verse 5. By awesome deeds in righteousness you will answer us. O God of our salvation. Verse 2, you who hear prayer. Now verse 5, you who answers prayer. Again, there's the bold confidence of David. By awesome deeds in righteousness you will answer us. O God of our salvation. That last phrase there, those five words, O God of our salvation, that's important. Because David's confidence in verse 5 finds its root in the reality of verses 1 to 4. It is because God is the God of our salvation that David is confident that God will answer by awesome deeds in righteousness. It is because he is the God of salvation that he will surely be the God of deliverance. That he will surely be the God that provides. Here we find the same thinking of, that we're familiar with in Romans 8. If he can save me from sin, then there is no enemy on earth or in heaven that can stand against him. If he is the God of my salvation, if he can save me from sin, then he can save me from anything. That's the same truth we see in Romans 8. A well-known passage. I'm just going to read it really quickly. Romans 8, 31 to 39. It's the exact same logic. Because you are the God of my salvation. In awesome deeds I know that you will answer. Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, he who is the God of our salvation, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written? For your sake we are killed all the day long. 
We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. All of Paul's confidence goes back to the cross of Christ. If you saved us, surely you will provide for us. It's exactly what David proclaims here. By awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer us. And where does my confidence in that come from? It's the fact that you are the God of my salvation. It is who you are. You who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth. David's confidence is the same confidence of all who trust in God, regardless of where or when they are. And of the far off seas. These first five verses we see David praising God for the work of salvation. He is Redeemer. In verses 6 to 13 then, he focuses on God as Creator, the work of creation. This God who saved, verses 1 to 5, is the same God who created, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power. And as he's creator of the mighty mountains, so he is the tamer of the roaring seas. He is creator and he is sustainer. You who still the noises of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumults of the peoples. That's an interesting comparison there. And a fitting one. As God stills the waters, so he stills the nations. God is just has just as much power and authority and providence over oceans as he does over nations. He is creator, he is sustainer, he is active in his creation. His power stretches to the ends of the earth, to the earth. They also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice from rising sun in the east to setting sun in the west. God's control extends to the ends of the earth and the heavens and the earth declare the power and the glory of this God. Therefore, once again, Paul picks up on that idea in Romans 1. Therefore, they're without excuse. The evidence of God is all around. They who dwell in the farthest parts from the edges of the earth, even they are afraid of your signs. Even they see your signs. You visit the earth with water. Verses 9 to 10. God's provision. His care. And it notice that it, the, the language here is language of abundance. Of overflowing. Of a, almost, as you read it, almost as a flood. But not a destructive flood. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain. For so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make its, its soft with, with showers. You bless its growth. This is not a picture of a God who just created and then stepped away. This is a God who is actively, intimately, meticulously 
involved in his creation. And I love this this phrase in verse 11, you crown the year with your goodness. You crown the year with your goodness. Every passing year and every passing harvest testifies to God's providential care. You crown the year with your goodness. At the end of the year, you place the crown of your goodness upon it. It's as if you're gonna, you were going to name the year. And you get to the end of your first year on life, and you're a remarkable baby, and so you can think clearly and speak. And, and you get to the end, and you look back on that first year. What are you going to name that first year? As I look back, I'm going to name it God's goodness. And the second year comes. And you get to the end of that second year, and you look back, and you say, I'm going to name it God's goodness. And year after year after year to 32 to 43 to 54 to 65 to 76 to 87 to 90, whatever. Every year, God is good. Every year from beginning to end proclaims the goodness of God. As the heavens declare the glory of God, so life declares the goodness of God. You crown the year with your goodness, even 2020. Even years where there's not a good harvest. I'm sure that this psalm would have been much easier to to gather together and to sing on good years where there's a huge harvest. And yet it's no less true on years when there's not a big harvest. It's no less true in drought or in famine that God is good and every year is crowned with his goodness. And your path drips with abundance. The CSB puts it this way, your carts overflow with plenty. It's the same idea, dripping because of overflowing or just overflowing with plenty. More than enough. Providing in abundance. They drop on the pasture of the wilderness and the little hills rejoice on every side. Verse 12 looks beyond the man, beyond cities, beyond that, into the wilderness. Even in the wilderness, God provides. God cares for all of creation, not just the places inhabited by man. His eye is on the sparrow. Even where where man does not trek, God provides. Verse 13, the pastures are clothed with flocks. God's abundant care. The valleys also covered with grain. They shout for joy and also sing. Creation itself praises God for his provision. God sees, God hears, God cares. So as you come to the end of Psalm 65, Psalm 65 is a psalm that celebrates God's provision both in salvation and in creation. And Psalm 65 calls God's people to rejoice and to have faith. Rejoice in your God who has provided for your salvation. 
Rejoice in your God who's provided all that you need and then trust him. Trust him. He's a caring God. Trust him. Know that God sees. Know that God hears. Know that God knows. Know that God provides. And so in just a second, as we take prayer requests and we turn our attention to prayer, remember who it is to who we are praying. He's a God who hears. He's a God who cares. He's a God who provides. And there are some very serious things that we're praying for. There's things that are going on around the world in Israel and in Myanmar and um, India. Those are big things. Even as you bring in closer to, to people that we are connected with, people that we know, there are people struggling with life and death. These are big things that we are praying for. And yet we're praying to a God who hears a God who knows, a God who cares, a God who provides. So as we take these requests and then as we go to prayer, pour your heart out to God. But pray believing. Know who your God is. And pray believing that he will crown this year with goodness just like every other year before. He knows what he's doing. He hears, he sees, he cares, and he will provide. That in mind, we'll turn our minds.